What is it that makes us, as humans, different, even, shall I say, better than monkeys? Well, maybe not much these days, but we do have a few things going for us as a species. It's our ability to think and feel and create, and that innate desire to do great things for other people. Hello everybody, I'm Brian Hanna, and today on Better Than Monkeys, we will be joined by music therapist Brittany Barco. She's going to tell us all about the field of music therapy how you become a music therapist, who benefits from music therapy. There's a lot of great information contained in today's podcast, and I'm glad you decided to join us for Better Than Monkeys. Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Hanna, and joining me today for Better Than Monkeys, Brittany Barco, MTBC. Hey, Brittany, what do those four letters stand for? That stands for Music Therapist Board Certified. That's complicated, isn't it? It's music you work board. a lot for four mm. letters. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> and it, and it's worth it. Well, thanks for joining us for Better Than Monkeys today. And why don't we start off by introducing our audience to the field of music therapy? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your profession? Music therapy as a profession started gaining ground post-World War II. When veterans were coming back from the war, musicians who were volunteers were both treating psychological and medical issues using soothing music, using music as uh, a non-pharmacological use of pain management then started to gain track where programs began to develop through the 60s, 70s, 80s, gaining foundations, different degrees. Through the 70s and 80s, the first music therapy undergraduate program was at Michigan State University. It first started out very passive, where a patient would just sit and receive. But we found that the most magic occurs in music making active music making with a credentialed music therapist. There's uh, quite a difference between someone who can perform really well and a music therapist who can know the diagnosis of a patient to know uh, whether they're post-op surgery, traumatic brain injury, stroke, using the components of where the brain is injured or what the ailment is to then tailor that music, usually preferred and live for that need. So you can actually target your response based on where the brain is not functioning at its most optimal level. Yeah, we are we're constantly assessing. And I work mostly in neurologic rehab, so stroke, Parkinson's disease, traumatic brain injury, and we use a principle mostly because of where our brain processes music and where we process motor ability. They're very close. Mm-hmm. And so Even, I like to use the example, if you were listening to a woman with high heels on walk down a floor, you hear the click of her heels. Not only do we hear that in our brain, but the neurons that help us to process that sound are firing at the same rate. And because the auditory cortex is very close to the motor cortex, some of the neurons in the motor cortex are also firing at that same rate. So it's easier to move at a certain clip when you have an auditory stimulus. Is that also why subconsciously when you hear something, you bob your head or you snap your finger or you tap your toe? Sure. Same thing? Exactly. It's just they're next to each other, so your body's just reacting automatically to that rhythm, that yes. sound. So why don't you walk us through what would be considered a typical session? It really depends on the population and the goal in mind. There really is no such thing as a typical session. Mm. Uh, So I'll just give a couple examples. Um, 
I work in palliative care in the hospital, and I get a lot of referrals from nursing and neurology for pain management or anxiety reduction, whether that's due to a medication change or a surgery, pneumonia. And in a situation like that, I would look at their diagnosis, the latest uh, maybe palliative care note, a neurology note to see how they were assessed from other disciplines. Then uh, my next job is to offer services. I come in with a guitar and a cart of percussion instruments. Percussion mm -hmm. instruments are really easy to play, doesn't require much training. If you hit a drum, you're doing it right. And so I present it as I offer live music to work on X, Y, and Z. Are you interested? And sometimes in the hospital, you can't choose a lot. You have all these wires hooked up to you. Your nurse and your doctor are telling you big words that you don't understand, and you're stuck waiting for some diagnosis, and you can't choose anything. So being able to choose the nature of your music therapy services isn't in already. Then I might ask music preference. That's a really important in that setting. So in the hospital setting, some people might like old classic country. Erie loves classic country. I must do Johnny Cash, Patsy Cline, and Hank Williams seven times a day. But everybody likes different things. And that's important that you're presenting them with something that they are familiar with and that they know. Depending on what the goal is, I might invite them to play a maraca or claves or a big stinking drum so that they can just have a deviation from the wires and the sounds and the, the sterile environment of the hospital. I know a lot of people who would be nervous singing or playing an instrument in front of somebody else, even a complete stranger. Uh, is this the case more often than not? A little bit of both. I use lines often like, this is a judgment-free zone, or I will close the door so that other people in the hall can't hear. And a line uh, we used a lot in undergrad is, it's not about the product, but the process. We're not training to go on the road. We're about making a meaningful experience with someone who I can lead musically so that they don't have to think about it and they can just jam on a maraca and sing Sweet Home Alabama. Because when else would you sing in a hospital? So it just depends. Some people are very self-conscious and so I joke around sometimes. And the vulnerable nature of music making in a place where it usually doesn't happen, tends to help others to open up as well. That may lead to a conversation about what has helped them cope with their stay. What are strong systems of support when they leave the hospital? What is a, a great coping skill for them to use when the pain medication wears out and they can't get it for another hour? Sometimes that might be just sitting alone and singing in the garden, which happened yesterday. In doing research for the podcast today, I'd watched a video of a therapist who put a set of headphones on an Alzheimer's patient, a patient who had been uh, practically unresponsive to the family members, uh, very little interaction. Well, after a few minutes of listening to music, these patients started to sing along to the lyrics, remembering lyrics from years ago, and they started to interact with the therapist and with the family members. And apparently, this continued on for some time after therapy was over. Was that an actual music therapy session? 
Well, one thing I'd like to just clear up a little bit, um, us in the music therapy community work a lot on advocacy and defining um, what a music therapist is and sometimes what mm -hmm. we're not. And the difference between that gentleman in the movie that was so famous is that anyone can stick on a pair of headphones of preferred music. And the field of music therapy really banks on the relationship of a credentialed music therapist with a client. So even if in rare instances when a music therapist would use recorded music, which in my case would only be maybe 10%, most of the music I utilize is live. The difference is, is that a music therapist has the counseling and psychology skills to then facilitate a conversation, to know what form of questions to ask this patient with dementia to get the most successful result. The relationship between the client and the patient is the big difference between sticking on headphones and having some sort of result versus facilitating a um, dementia-specific conversation that can then be transferred to when family comes in. Family can be so overwhelmed with, I can't communicate with dad anymore, we've lost him. Um, and so we can provide tools through music, No and research what sort of music this patient would like to then give tools to families so that this could perhaps transfer outside of that window. Did the families participate in the actual therapy sessions? I think it depends on the patient. Sometimes if attention is a problem, there might be too many distractions. So, um, but if it's a motivating factor, then getting a family member to play a maraca to show that this is a safe environment and that it's not about a performance, but rather just a good time and a meaningful experience with that family member. Does the medical establishment, the insurance side, do they recognize this as a valid treatment? And does insurance often cover this kind of thing? The good news is, is when music therapists write goals and treatment plans for their patients, there's actually no music terminology used at all. It would look just like a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or a psychologist note. So when we bill insurance, which some insurances recognize and reimburse, which is tremendous, we bill with the same codes that other therapists use. And the music language might come in in the intervention that we use. Um, let's see if I can give an example. Maybe in an occupational therapy setting, being able to raise your arm to shoulder height. That helps with being able to do activities of daily living, reaching for objects, normal day-to-day -day activities. So and a goal may read as upper extremity range of motion. The objective might be patient will reach seven out of 10 times at shoulder height with X extremity. And an intervention may be patient will hit a drum held at shoulder height using palmer grasp of his right hand for X times. So playing instruments non-conventionally, using the letters of a xylophone to work on attention or spelling so that when we bill insurance or when we co-treat with other therapies at facilities, that the music is just a tool to reach a non-music goal. So the field of music therapy is fascinating. How does one go about becoming a music therapist? So there is an undergraduate degree in music therapy 
offered in schools around the country and around the world. Music therapy students are required a minimum of 1,200 clinical hours, where most of them are achieved in a six-month internship post-undergraduate um, work. So some of those hours um, happen during clinical experiences during your four years of undergrad, which include um, classes in biology, psychology, and an entire music curriculum. So advanced music theory, um, a, a large ensemble of some sort, in addition to all music therapy students need to pass proficiencies in voice, piano, guitar, and percussion. As a music therapy major, you're, um, you're committed on a level where if you're not preparing a paper for your abnormal psych class, you're practicing your Bon Jovi for your next clinical musicianship class. Um, and everybody has strengths, too, which is another facet of music therapy I find really interesting. A music therapist who works with kids with autism has a very different skill set than one who might work in a drug rehab facility. And so I find it's really important to find a specialty or maybe just a couple because we train to work with all populations, whether that's um, traumatic brain injury, children on the spectrum, dementia, hospice. That's another great application. Um, but because we're different people, some music therapists may be better counselors, working one-on-one, -on -one, someone um, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, let's say, whereas other music therapists are a little more activity-oriented and would be better to lead a Parkinson's movement group. Say you've got a uh, Parkinson's patient, you know, and, and they're all going to be different, but you said a group movement class, right? So. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that would transpire? So Parkinson's disease results in a lack of a neurotransmitter in our brain called dopamine. Dopamine helps regulate our mood. It also helps in movement. And a tiny structure in the brain called the substantia nigra is responsible for producing this neurotransmitter. And in Parkinson's, that's lacking. So some drugs are given to people with Parkinson's that simulate dopamine, but the results are varying. It doesn't always last very long. So Parkinson's may transpire in freezing or jerky movements, uncontrolled tremors, in addition to soft speaking volume, inability to talk, and it's a progressive disease. So unfortunately, there's no cure, but there are several interventions that can slow the progression. And the largest um, researched and proven preventative or slower downer of this is exercise. And using the same relationship that we talked about earlier with how we hear and how we move are so uh, close, a music therapist might develop music or find preferred music that's in a, a tempo where you could move to. So for every beat of a song or for every um, movement pattern, you would be moving to, to the speed of you are my sunshine or something. And so maybe in a Parkinson's group where their abilities are similar, we would find preferred songs and a preferred tempo or speed where we would model visually how to move to music. The biggest thing for Parkinson's is emphasizing big movements. 
we can train our brain that if we think it's too big, if we think we're walking like Bigfoot or just being gigantic with keeping our, our fingers flayed or our arms spread out, that's actually normal. So we can recalibrate the brain of Parkinson's using big exercise paired with an auditory cue. Not only does the quality of movement improve, but the quantity will become less effortful. If you can hear a cue from the time you need to get from A to B, you're more likely to get there in time because it's predictable. You can pick up on that cue and it's no longer, well, I have to move from X to Y in no amount of time, but if you have only a certain amount, you're more likely to get there in time and the quality of movement to get there is increased. Do you use these techniques after the fact? Or is this something that lasts, well, there, there's my question. Is this something that only lasts during the therapy session, then they're kind of back to normal right afterwards? So there's my question. So the main component of success in a physical therapy idiom is that most therapy happens outside of the session. You have to do your homework. A lot of people don't do their homework. And so providing accessible exercises to do at home, whether that's um, through worksheets or making a music track that's at their specific tempo to take home with them, giving them tools that the repetition is there is essential. A lot of the studies that have been done on specifically gait training, so walking 10 feet on a tiled floor using music therapy, they found that the results sustained for at least eight weeks post their last session. After those eight weeks, the therapist would assess, do they do a little brush-up course? Do they get new tailored tracks? Do they have to go through the entire regimen again? But a lot is dependent upon repetition, whether that's in-home, in-clinic, combination of both, and motivation of the patient. You're listening to Better Than Monkeys from WQLN Radio. Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Hanna, and joining me today on Better Than Monkeys, board-certified music therapist Brittany Barco. She's here all day telling us about the wonderful benefits of music therapy. We're going to pick up right where we left off, and in this next section, she's going to begin by telling us about the benefits of music therapy for people with autism. What kind of therapy uh, techniques would you use for, like, an autistic patient? Again, this would probably be more one-on-one. -on -one. Just depends. Or just depends. Yeah. Probably the most common goal areas that um, individuals on the autism spectrum can benefit from music therapy include um, cognition. So that includes attention, whether that's sustained attention, divided attention. Um, also executive functioning, which means planning, memory, then another domain would be social. Like you mentioned, sometimes uh, there's not cognitive deficits, but there's social. Using music interventions to teach how saying hello and goodbye is socially appropriate. And I, you make up a hello song. You insert names of everyone in the therapy session or in the group. So we have cognitive, social, emotional is another big one. Being able to express emotions both on your face or um, through your body language is often hard, but being able to express on an instrument for most is not as um, abstract. I might do 
interventions on what does angry sound like on a drum? How does that sound different than if you're scared? And sometimes it, it takes modeling from me, but using different uh, music playing interventions to model emotions, then transferring that to, um, if you just lost your puppy, how would you feel? Um, if you can't express that, maybe you can play it. And pairing that sad sounds like this, excited sounds like that. And that transfers to any um, attention disorder, even behavioral disorders. Being able to express yourself emotionally helps you to be understood by others, which prevents you from getting frustrated or having higher anxiety. And is it like any therapy where uh, sometimes there just isn't a connection there and it, maybe I should refer you to another therapist? Sure thing. thing. Sure because thing. sometimes people respond better to a, a different person. Right. You know? um, I have some clients um, who prefer working with a female therapist uh, instead of a guy. And so in my uh, private practice, we have both. And so we, we ask that. Sometimes I, I take on the granddaughter role when I'm working with elderly, and that works. Other times, if I'm working with young adults, maybe in a hospital setting, it's nice to have someone that looks like you. You might relate better than, than someone who's different. That's definitely a big part. And not all patients who have needs that could be addressed by music therapy are appropriate for music therapy. A lot of that is just determined through assessment and trial and error. So who calls you? So far, we do the calling. Erie has had a music therapy presence for maybe a decade or so. A lot of that had to do with the development of the undergrad program at Mercyhurst and showing how we can help. We've reached out to hospitals, rehab facilities, facilities that treat kids with autism and said, here's the data on how these services can supplement what you offer. Here's how cost effective this is versus other therapies or medication XYZ. And so we've been doing a lot of advocacy and uh, some of that has resulted in PR which has allowed others to call us. So when we get calls, it's parents of kids with autism, it's parents of children with Down syndrome or behavioral disorders, anyone whose loved one has had traumatic brain injury or um, suffered emotional trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, someone who loves playing guitar but has a learning disability and traditional music lessons will not work. That's kind of interesting too. So. Um, music therapy isn't just uh, focused on just uh, people who need rehab or people who are suffering from a, a motor skills uh, deficiency or people who are having uh, uh, maybe some psychological uh, problems due to either a, a physical uh, injury or uh, maybe just they were born with a, with a, a, a I don't want to use the word disability, but uh, an affliction. Um, so really... What it comes down to is music therapy is it's about enhancing quality of life, not necessarily just uh, trying to get somebody better. Exactly. Especially in the hospice setting, like you mentioned, quality of life, which sometimes gets thrown under the bus because no one can quantify it, is, is a goal often, often addressed, where 
listening to your favorite song and being able to share an experience where you're not thinking about pain or all of the the material things you just lost because you're stuck in a hospice facility with your husband is improving that time right there and then. And even in a hospice setting, we might do a songwriting intervention with a spouse to express uh, all the things they love about that person. And what a gift for a spouse to be able to present something that they wrote specifically a non-musician, you know, the music therapist would provide the tune and help to uh, arrange the words so that they rhyme if it's important or uh, all of the logistics of songwriting to, be, to then present the patient with this original and usually heartwarming or funny, you know, depending on what you need, this gift. So which medical conditions might see the most benefit from a music therapy session? Traumatic brain injury, autism, attention deficit disorder, Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy, hospice, palliative care, Down syndrome, post-surgery, sickle cell disease, emotional trauma, eating disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, Alzheimer's, dementia. What if somebody is listening to this uh, podcast at home, uh, one of the three people, (laughs) and they decide that they would like to take advantage of this. How do people find out about music therapy as an option? I work for a private practice in Erie called Lake Erie Music Therapy, and you can Google that, and our website is the first to show up, which leads you to our website on our staff and some FAQ on what is music therapy, how can we serve you, our contact information, our email and phone number, different insurances that have been successful. Um, That's the easiest way. There are other music therapists in town, and I'm just part of the one team. So, Brittany, you work with some people with some pretty serious medical conditions, and I'm sure it's a little difficult to stay positive all the time. Well, how do you bring yourself back down? Uh, How do you ground yourself after a difficult day of music therapy? What is your therapy? Sometimes (laughs) my therapy is baking. I like to make cupcakes (laughs) or play in the garden. And um, since age nine, I've been active in church. And so I think uh, my faith-based outlook on things, which got me into this field to begin with, is what I rely on when I have a bad day, when I don't have successes. Um, You find quickly, as any therapist, that it's not about you. And some musicians can fall into the trap of attributing their talents to themselves, whereas uh, my perspective is is that I am simply an instrument. When I get seven patients on a floor, I don't know who to see first. I've never met them. And so I, I just ask that I'm an instrument to go to the right person, the right family, to uh, be able to give them services that someone else can't. I hope you've enjoyed our little walk through the world of music therapy today here on Better Than Monkeys. If you'd like more information on this fascinating career field, just do a Google search. There's plenty of resource available on the internet about this exciting new course of therapy. I'd like to thank Brittany Barco, music therapist, board certified, for joining us here today on Better Than Monkeys. And I'd like to thank you at home 
for joining us for another exciting edition of WQLN's first podcast, BTM. You can find all of our Better Than Monkeys podcasts archived right now at wqln.org backslash BTM. I'm Brian Hanna. Thanks for joining me for Better Than Monkeys. Better Than Monkeys is a production of WQLN Radio. I like to make cupcakes (laughs) or play in the garden.